As we uh, continue our Impact World series in the book of Acts, we're near wrapping it up. We're, we're uh, getting to the very end here today. So I would invite you to open to the book of Acts, to the last chapter, chapter 28. If you're not sure where it is, it's about halfway through the New Testament, so about three quarters of the way probably uh, through your Bible, whatever you're uh, holding there. If you have an electronic device, all of the uh, information that you need for our Wi-Fi is in your program, so you can jump on there and then just uh, type it in your search. Uh, if you don't have a Bible of your own that you can readily read and understand, we want you to have one. So please, uh, by all means, we have some uh, posted at each of the doors. Feel free to take one. If you have a friend that needs one, please take it and give to them. We we want to make sure that you are receiving the Word of God, not the opinion of man. You don't need to hear my opinion or what I think. You need to know what God says. So as we are working through this, I don't want you to just take my word for it. I want you to see it. I want you to be able to read it so that if you hear anything from this pulpit or anywhere else, from an author or a podcaster or a preacher or teacher, that doesn't match the word of God, you need to be able to see that and call it out and reject what is false. There are a lot of false things in the world. We want to make sure that we are clinging to what is true. So if you have found the book of Acts right after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, if you get to Romans and things that have place names there, then you can recognize that that's after the book of Acts. So uh, if you find the book of Acts, we're in chapter 28. I think I've stalled long enough for most of you to get there. Hopefully we're there. I'll be reading through this chapter. You can join along with me and follow. Dr. Luke writes, Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he gathered a pile—excuse uh, <clears throat> me—Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, "This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live." But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an, there was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed us gener generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and, after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways, and when they were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered on the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we reached Puteole. There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar." I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. 
It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, We've not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God. And from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn. And I would heal them. Therefore I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's pray. Father, as we, uh, as we venture through your word today, we recognize that we have no right on our own to expect from You. We have no right in our own strength and in our own righteousness to come before a holy God who may ascend the hill of the Lord, the one that has clean hands and a pure heart. Oh God, we know that that's not us. When we're just honest with ourselves, we don't need a preacher to point out that our our motives are often impure. There are so many times that we know what we ought to do and, and even what we want to do, and yet we don't do it. So many things that we know we shouldn't do. And even perhaps in our hearts, we don't really want them, but we do it anyway thoughts that we fail to discipline and take control of selfishness pride father so many of us are guilty of gossip disrespect of rightful authorities (laughs) choosing not to acknowledge the authority of those who we decide are not worthy Lord, forgive us. Cleanse us. Have mercy on us. Lord, in this moment today, I pray that You would capture our hearts. That You would, by Your Spirit, draw us to Yourself. Grant us repentance. That we would would actually turn from our way with eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that understand. Even this, Lord, is a gift of Your Spirit. A gracious gift. So, Father, we, we fall on Your mercy. We humble ourselves. As Brad prayed earlier, Lord, there are many things that divide us in this world. May our kinship in Christ be what unites us. Now, Father, as we open Your Word, I ask that You would would clear our minds, clear my mind of anything that might distract. Father, You know the, the focus issues I have sometimes, even this morning. So I pray that you would move in a way that I can't. That your Holy Spirit would take hold of us. 
that you would shine a light into your word, that you would sweep out the dusty corners of our hearts, that we might take you seriously. Lord, be glorified, be honored by our time today. We give it to you as a sacrifice of praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, my wife and I have recently come to understand in a new and experiential way the meaning of binge-watching television. We've been kind of caught up in these superhero shows uh, that we've been picking up on Netflix. And one of the things that can plague us like an addiction at times is we get to watch these things toward the end of the night generally after my daughter is in bed and and we plan to watch an episode, right? And we'll get to it. And you get to the end of the episode. You're caught up in the characters and you're caught up in the storyline. And then the credits roll and you're like in the middle of the story. It's like, what? Well, we got to watch another one. We can't go to bed. Tends to cost a little in the morning. But these cliffhangers that they leave us with I mean, for crying out loud, when, when the, the flash gets sucked up into the singularity in this black hole that's consuming Central City, I just don't know what to do. I lose my mind. I've got to watch it. I'm committed to it. And it's unsatisfying. That's the nature of a cliffhanger. It's always unsatisfying. It's like you, you get to the end of the meal and they bring out the dessert cart and somebody says, psych, and pulls it away and you don't get the dessert. It's a, it's a heartbreaking thing. Football fans might recognize that when you're in the middle of watching a football game and while the play is going on, they cut away to some stupid political thing. Or Heidi, if you're old enough to remember that moment. Some of you know. Nothing wrong with Heidi. Nothing wrong with important political things. But really, in the middle of the game? The book of Acts is a little bit like that. We get to the end here, and, and Luke ends his book in that way, with this cliffhanger. All of a sudden, we've been going through, and, we, and we'll have all these stories that are very detailed, and, and we have details here too, but all of a sudden, it's bam, 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 stop. That's it. Roll credits. Why? Just like with my Arrowverse shows that I've been watching, there's more to the story. You need to come back and see what happens next. Paul, here in chapter 28 of the book of Acts, is shipwrecked on on Malta, along with everybody else on the ship, 276 people in all, which makes the hospitality of Publius a little bit uh, mind-blowing, right? Now, granted, he's the chief official of the island uh, representing Rome. He's got something of of a palatial estate, if you will, And he's able to take in and show hospitality to 276 people. But don't miss out on the fact that a significant portion of those people aren't crew members members or paying passengers. They are criminals, prisoners, being taken to Rome for punishment or in Paul's case for trial. Taking in prisoners... That's kind of scary, isn't it? These aren't Christian folks on the island. These are are pagans, and not perhaps in the pejorative way that we might recognize them now. You see terms like pagan and barbarian uh, in some of your translations. And barbarian basically means they're, they're uneducated in the Greek way. So they don't speak Greek, so they're referred to as barbarians. It doesn't mean the savage thing we might think of today. When we have in our minds here the the pagans we might think of that as some uh, insulting pejorative term of uh, uh, people without any kind of a code or morals that's not really at all here pagans proudly at this time those who would espouse the the greco-roman mythology the the religious aspects of rome and worship their gods so they're not afraid of being pagans they're not insulted by that but these pagans barbarians who are native to malta or living in malta have all of these guys 
come up to shore. And if you may remember from Acts 27, this happens because of a shipwreck. They're taking Paul to Rome. He's appealed his case to Caesar. The Roman officials would have let him go. The Jews wanted to have him killed. God had already told him, you will preach in Rome just as you have in Jerusalem. You will stand before kings and judges. And Paul appeals to Caesar because he's a Roman citizen. As a citizen Christian, he participates in the world around him. It's not just pulling out and living in some monastery. He actually is involved in the world. And so he claims his Roman citizenship, a very special status in this society. And he could have gotten loose. He could have been freed. But instead, he goes to Rome on this ship. On this ship, they encounter this northeaster, this great storm that wrecks the ship. And God tells them, the ship's going to wreck. You're not going to lose a life. Just do what I say and we're going to be good. Those who can swim, swim. Those who cannot, grab a log or a, a piece of the ship. And a log, I don't know where I came up with that one. Uh, and, and, and you're going to get to shore. But God said, you're not going to lose a life. All of them get to shore and they're still in the, in the effects of this storm. They've been in the, in the ocean, in the Mediterranean here. They're cold, they're wet, it's winter time, it's, it's past the, uh, the, the late holidays here and they're getting to this island they don't know. Turns out it's Malta. Melita in some of your older translations it would have been called then. Now we call it Malta. And so they, they get there and the natives of the island... You know, I'm, I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking Gilligan's Island, right? And you got cannibals and, and guys in gorilla suits and all that. Kind of, it's not quite like that. But the people that live on the island who are, they don't know these guys. They, they demonstrate profound grace. And in the midst of this rainstorm with these prisoners and strangers coming up on the, on the beach, they build a fire, they feed them, they take them in. And then they take him to Publius and, and he takes them in and, and houses them for a few days. And in the process here, God does some things. Well, there are, uh, there are some particular points that we want to recognize and we'll work through some of those. But many commentators will say, well, Paul doesn't even preach the gospel here. This is the one time we see Paul not preaching the gospel. And I would take issue with that everything we know about paul even the flow of this and everything about the book of acts indicates that paul is never off mission whatever's going on the reality of christ governs his thinking governs his actions paul he's shipwrecked uh, the natives are kind and hospitable. They build a fire to save them. He's bitten by a snake. He's unharmed by this snake. That kind of causes a, a freaky thing for them. Oh, my goodness, he's a murderer. The, the gods are going to punish him. Oh, my goodness, he's unharmed. He must be a god himself. So, you know, kind of flipping on that. They go to, the, to Publius, and he shows this hospitality. Choose words you can say, Zyger. Publius shows hospitality to him. Turns out his father is sick with a fever. Paul prays, lays hands on him, heals him. Everybody hears about it, not shockingly. And all the sick of the island come and receive healing from Paul. That's a powerful thing. They have a great three-month stay there. They, they hang out. They winter there. Then they're off to Rome in another Alexandrian ship. They get to Rome, Paul's on house arrest, that's why he has a guard, but they don't put him in a prison at this point. Later on he will be, but that's, that's in chapter 29, that's not here. So when, when Paul gets to Rome, God sees fit for the Romans to put him up in his own rented house. He has a guard with him in this house arrest, they didn't have an electronic tether, or maybe they would have done that. So they get to this place, and Paul has freedom. 
his freedom to teach, to preach, to gather. After uh, being just getting settled in, the third day there, he invites Jews, uh, the, the, the leadership, to come from the synagogue since he, you know, he's on house arrest. He brings them there to hear his defense. His defense is the gospel. Uh, and, and they come. They're not prejudiced. They haven't received letters saying, oh, don't listen to Paul, he's a bad guy. They haven't, they haven't gotten word about Paul, but they have heard about the way, this sect of the Nazarene, those who follow Christ. And it's been bad-mouthed throughout the area, throughout Rome, throughout the empire. This is a couple of decades. You're talking about 20-plus years now since Jesus has died. And those who are following are getting spread out throughout the land. The Romans don't like it. The Jews don't like it. The Romans later on will come to like it. The Jews will not. But as they're going through this, they are not turned against Paul. They want to hear what he has to say. When Paul shares with them the gospel, some believe, some don't, just like everywhere else he's gone. And Paul, having done what he normally does in approaching the Jews first, then points out what the prophet Isaiah said about Isaiah's own people, the Jews, God's own chosen people. You're going to be ever seeing and never perceiving. You're going to hear, you're not going to get it. Why? Your hearts are hard. And I keep sending you messages. I keep sending my offer. And you keep rejecting it and going your own way. You've got all the religion in the world, but you don't have me. And Paul leaps from that to his conclusion. Now, as God has always intended, this message will be taken to the Gentiles, which, generally speaking, is all of us those who are outside of Israel. And he brings that gospel message to those who are outsiders, who don't have the same reason to believe it that Israel would. And he says, they will listen. Those who are outside, who don't have the advantages you have, will listen to this gospel. So, Paul preaches undisturbed while he's at Rome, and then we have this abrupt ending, this cliffhanger. The entire book of Acts is, is the playing out of Acts 1.8. You may remember in Acts 1.8, Jesus, as he is about to ascend to the Father, says to his disciples, listen, stop stressing about whether God's going to establish the kingdom now. That's not the issue at hand. We get caught up in end time stuff. This is just a little sidelight here for you, no charge. So, we have a lot of folks right now all over social media posting all kinds of things that they say they know that they don't know about the end times and who the Antichrist is and everything that we're seeing right now in the White House and all this other stuff. It's a clear sign that Jesus is coming and God is judging us. And, and there may be some truth to that. And there may not be. What I know for sure is Jesus said Himself, all these things, wars and unrest and, and ecological disasters, this is all going to happen. It's part of the plan. Chill. You'll know when I'm coming back because you know, the trumpet will sound and everything will change. It won't be a secret. It's not, you know, I'm going to show up on the L and, and you're going to look over in the seat next to you and, oh my goodness, there's, there's Jesus. It's not like that. He's not going to show up in the White House. He's not going to show up in your cultural milieu the way you expect. He will part the skies when He returns. It will not be a secret. In the meantime, Jesus says, chill and get to work. You are here for a purpose. Paul never forgets that purpose. But in Acts 1.8, Jesus says, listen, it's not about the days and times and all of those things that you're stressing about but you will receive power when the holy spirit comes on you and through this power when the holy spirit comes on you you will be my witnesses in jerusalem where this is all taking place in judea and samaria the surrounding area 
and even to the ends of the earth, which is where we find ourselves now. In Acts 28, and in our lives today, the gospel has spread, and now it's spread to lands they didn't even know existed at that time, including us here in Three Oaks. As we see Paul come to the end of this particular journey, he's not done. Despite all the craziness swirling in his world, and snake bite and all this, he is stabilized by the result of having Christ in his life. This reality is big. And he never loses sight of, of that reality. He never tires of the mission. In fact, later on, he'll write in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, in light of the resurrection, in light of the sting of death being stolen away by Christ, he says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's our memory verse for today. I would encourage you to take that to heart. This chapter... And the rest of Paul's life are an illustration of our core reality. You were wondering when I was going to get to it, weren't you? An illustration of our core reality. Paul's living it out. You're seeing it there. And we can take from this what we see in this chapter as an extension of the whole book. Put it into our own life. When I grasp the gravity of God's grace, it eclipses every other thing. When I grasp the gravity of God's grace, it eclipses every other thing. Now, all of my sons and my nephews all have played ball in various ways. And uh, it's football, baseball, basketball, soccer, which we don't mention very often. Uh, you know, whatever it is, wrestling even, there's no ball involved. But when you're in these things... There is always the possibility of getting hurt. Say amen if you've been hurt playing sports, right? Okay, not that many of you, right? I, I, so, okay. Say amen if you've been hurt playing sports or you've had a kid hurt playing sports. It's always a possibility. But one of the things that I've noticed is that it hurts a lot more. Some of you guys can identify. It hurts a lot more when you fumble the ball or you miss the tackle, right? When you score it doesn't hurt as much when you win in in sports we call that the ultimate deodorant it covers up everything paul understands that ultimately god wins therefore those who are in christ win therefore whatever happens on the field in between it just doesn't matter near as much as the final result. The reality of Christ dwarfs lesser realities. When I grasp the gravity of God's grace, it eclipses every other thing. Okay, so as we see this in Paul's life in chapter 28, Paul has become what we might call unflappable. I was looking for a way to say unflappable. Paul becomes unflappable. He's shipwrecked. Everybody's tripping. The, the, the pilot is freaking out. The crew is freaking out. In fact, the crew actually in chapter 27, they try to bail on everybody else and let loose the lifeboat and escape from the ship, leaving everybody behind. Not a good crew. Now they're all on the island together. I want to hear how those conversations went. Paul, Paul says, look, unless every one of them stays, you're not going to make it out of this alive. If they stay, everybody lives. So the, the uh, commander then cuts off the, the, uh, the ropes and lets the lifeboat fall into the sea. And they all survive. But what happens here in this shipwreck is everybody's freaking out and Paul is cool. He's stable. Why? Because Paul is focused on a bigger reality than this moment. He sees something they don't see. Now, when we read this account of him being bitten by the snake in the fire, and uh, raise your hand if, if you really are not fond of snakes. <laughs> that's, that's me. I'm like, snake? No. I saw a little garter snake the other day when I was working out at the pasture, and I, I reached down, there's a garter snake, and I, ah, ah, I, I was 
you know, I know it's a garter snake. It's not going to bite me. It's not like some crazy viper. It's just, a, it's, just, it's just a snake. No. Paul puts some wood on the fire. By the way, don't miss this. Paul doesn't see himself as better than others. We need to kill, kill the image of the lazy pastor, the lazy minister, or the, the uh, I'm too good for regular life kind of ministry. That, that does not exist. Paul, the great apostle who has just led them through this shipwreck, doesn't hesitate to go pick up sticks to put on the fire. He's gathering firewood. Paul, as he does this then, stokes up the fire. The snake that's been hiding there is moved out by the heat. I'm sure the snake's freaked out. Chomps down on Paul's hand. Doesn't just strike him, but actually fastens on. But we don't read anything about Paul freaking out, running around like I might do. They look at him like, oh my gosh. He escaped the sea, but karma, if I can use that, that very unchristian term. Karma's going to get him. He must be some terrible murderer because justice won't let him live. Paul says, huh, snake. Okay. And moves on with his life. And they're watching. They've seen all of the people that have been bitten on the island in their families. And when they see somebody get bitten, they swell up, they get the sickness, they die, it's miserable. No, doesn't happen to Paul. He just goes on. And as Paul goes on with his life, they're like, wait a minute, this is no ordinary man. This guy, he's not a murderer. He is a god. What a great opportunity for Paul. And while Dr. Luke doesn't record this for us, he doesn't tell us the conversation, he spent 27 chapters getting us to the point where he doesn't have to tell us. Can't you just hear it? Paul said, you know, this snake bit me. And I was dead. And what happened is I threw this snake off and the death that should have come to me did not. I was saved from death. Let me tell you about real death. When I was dead in my sin, And somebody else paid the price for me. Jesus took my death. So the death that I rightly deserve, that is already mine, by all rights, I belong separated from God for eternity. I belong in hell. That's what I deserve. And He took it from me. And I have an inexplicable life. What a great opportunity. So as Paul is dealing with this stuff, uh, this, there is this calmness that comes over him throughout all of these things because he's come to take the reality of Christ so seriously that lesser lights seem dim and distant. And in Christ, he's found more joy in living than ever before. He no longer finds his identity in the things of this world. He now counts all of his education, his reputation, his religious and social status. He counts all of that as loss. But his real identity is stronger and brighter and more vibrant than ever before. Now, in the preciousness of Christ, he can fully enjoy all the glory of God and all things to the glory of God. Whether he eats or drinks or whatever he does, he does it all in the name of Christ for God's glory with an appreciation and joyfulness that's beyond his previous dreams. Everything he thought he enjoyed before, while it seems smaller compared to the glory of Christ, and the sufferings that he endures aren't even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us, He's actually able to enjoy them more than he ever could before. What does that look like? Well, for me, that means pizza tastes better because I recognize it as a blessing from God. A home run is sweeter because of the grace of God. The the overwhelming divisiveness that we see in our nation does not grip me like it might have before. 
because I find myself so caught up in the preciousness of Christ and the sovereignty of God and the purposes of God in this land. Now, listen, that does not mean Paul doesn't have feelings. I'm sure the bite still hurt. He probably didn't really dig being on a shipwreck. Nobody likes being cold and wet. But it doesn't take him down. Because the reality of Christ is bigger. He grasps the gravity of God's grace and it eclipses every other thing in his life so he can fully enjoy all things. Here he is shipwrecked, stranded, cold, wet, unprepared for a winter stay on an unknown island, headed to Rome as a prisoner, snake bit, regarded as a heinous murderer, and he never flinches. He knows the reality of the one in whom he has believed, And he has learned to be content in er any and every situation because the reality of Christ and God's unspeakable grace to him overwhelm any lesser thing in his temporal life, whether good or bad. Encountering the reality of Christ changes the entire direction of my life, my priorities, my passions. It's not that I actually lose things. A lot of times we try, you know, like... I just I gotta lose this world. I gotta put everything away. I gotta skip it all. And it's yes, but it's also resoundingly no. Now I'm actually free to enjoy all things. That doesn't mean that all things are helpful to me. That doesn't mean that the things of the flesh appeal to me the way they did before. But I can recognize that God, the giver of all good gifts, has given us all things richly to enjoy. And I can participate in this world with meaning and passion and purpose. It changes my entire direction. It changes what matters. And it's not that I lose stuff, it's that I gain real perspective. The temporary things of this world lose their grip on me. All things in my life are now redeemed in Christ and become more meaningful, more purposeful than I ever knew possible. In Christ, I now see life through a different lens. It improves my stability. It improves my ability to live life in this world. Yeah, it does. But that's not really the point. That's that's a bonus. That's the byproduct. What's more than my stability in this life is that it gives me a new reason to live by dying to myself, dying to my sin, dying to this world, and being born again in Christ. This is what drives Paul as it drives all who take Christ seriously. Let me give you some things to write down here. We'll we'll knock these out. First off, we recognize in Paul that he is protected by God's providence. He's protected by God's providence. This is true for us who are in Christ. We are protected by God's providence. In other words, the reality of Christ in my life allows me to weather any storm, trusting that His plan is bigger than my moment. Let me say that again so we make sure we understand it. The reality of Christ in my life, not not religion, not working up certain emotions, not keeping a checklist, but the reality of the very person of Christ in me. It's a relationship of a very personal and real nature. It is more real than my relationship to my own wife or my own children. The reality of Christ in my life allows me to weather any storm. doesn't keep me from the storm. But it allows me to weather that storm, trusting that His plan is bigger than my moment. God's plans for our welfare, for the welfare of His children, are bigger than our temporal experience. We need to recognize that. God is doing something, and He doesn't have to tell you what it is. But when I recognize the reality of Christ and I grasp the gravity of God's grace, then all of these things take on a new meaning. I can see them in a new light, through a new lens. And when I have shipwrecks, okay. Snake bit, no big deal. Election didn't go the way you thought, no problem. 
People freaking out about vote counts. All right. Yeah, we've got to fix some of that stuff. But I'm going to heaven, man. <laughs> Jesus is real. This isn't some pie in the sky, I uh, hope that I die kind of stuff, right? I, I want to be able to live in that reality. And there is a peace and a comfort and a stability, a maturity that comes when I recognize that if I belong to the Maker of all things, to the Governor of galaxies, to the One who knows every star and its exact chemical composition, who understands all mysteries, they're not mysteries to Him. We can't even figure out if the universe is expanding or stable. We keep on debating about it. And we can't figure it out because we can't get to the end. Is it infinite or is it finite? We don't know. God knows all that. And that God, that same Creator, protects His own by His providence. It doesn't take a miracle. It takes God's constant involvement. Next, notice this. Paul, we see him protected by God's providence. We also see him proven by God's power. Proven by God's power. So Paul gets there and God uses these uh, folks on the island to provide for him and to protect him. He keeps him through the storm, keeps him through the snake bite, uh, makes the opportunity for him to, uh, to have housing and, and takes care of all of the folks from the ship by God's providence. But then when he gets to Publius's house, this prominent guy, the chief official of the island, sort of a, a, a Roman governor, if you will, not, not the full governorship that you might see in uh, some of the other councils, but, but here on this island, he's the man, right? But his dad's sick. What do you think is on Publius's mind? I, I find it interesting that while, while his dad is sick and ostensibly dying, because that's fairly normal when you contract a fever in, in these Mediterranean places in ancient times. The, the medicine wasn't what we have now. Couldn't just give him some ibuprofen and an ice bath and see what's going to happen. But he's got this infection, what one translation calls a bloody flux. I don't even want to know what that means. This is nasty. This is nasty. But in the midst of that, Publius still shows hospitality to these strangers. 276 of them. There's an openness in that kind of a person. And in the midst of that openness, Paul comes, hears about his dad. He's not, Publius isn't expecting anything from Paul. He's just another guy that washed up on the beach. And maybe he's the leader among them, unofficially. Maybe he's sensing some strength and stability as we do when, you know, like when John Wayne walks into the scene and you know that there's a man on the set now, right? When maybe Paul has that effect in his personal stability and maturity. But there's no expectation from Publius that my dad's going to be healed in this. And Paul prays. He puts his hands on him. And he's cured. Instantly healed. All of a sudden, that's all anybody's talking about. Hey, this guy did something you can't even believe. He has powers. And so they bring all the sick. How many of you know it's never been about the healing? We've been seeing it over and over again in the book of Acts. We've been talking about it. It's not about that. It's about the power from the Holy Spirit empowering your wisdom, your, your witness to all those who are watching. So Paul, as he acts in the power of the Holy Spirit in this unique situation, this is not what, what uh, a normative thing, just like uh, the snake bite is, does not justify all the snake handlers that are out there. Don't do dumb things and expect God to fix it for you. But this power that he displays gives authenticity to his message. This is why we see these miraculous things happen in the early church, in the apostolic age. That's why we see things reported from mission contexts where the word has not gone out that we don't see in other contexts. It's also why you can know when you see these things from television preachers who are gaining notoriety and even wealth from doing miraculous things, you can know they're charlatans. 
But Paul moves in the power of the Holy Spirit. And his testimony is proven by that power. Check this. The reality of Christ in my life is demonstrated by the actions of Christ reflected in my life. The reality of Christ in my life is demonstrated by the actions of Christ reflected in my life. Paul, in this situation, is doing the things that Jesus did in his earthly ministry as a, as a, a form of identification, if you will. A calling card that says, okay, here, this is backing up what I'm telling you. Because my actions have power, you can trust the authority of my words. These aren't magic tricks. And all who do these things in the name of Christ do not take personal credit for them. They deflect to the Lord who actually does it. We see the same thing in Daniel, and we all remember the story of Daniel and the lions. Daniel was very prominent with the king, and he was the interpreter of dreams. And so all the the wise men and the magicians of the kingdom, they can't figure out the king's dream because the king didn't even tell them what the dream was. If you're really a real dream interpreter, I'm going to tell you I had a dream. I'm not going to tell you what it was. You tell me what the dream was and then explain it to me. They're like, okay, nobody can do that. Somebody thinks of, oh, wait, there's this guy, Daniel. He's done this dream thing before. Daniel gets there and the king gives him the scenario. He said, king, nobody can do that. I can't do that. But God can. Then he goes on to tell him exactly what he dreamed and exactly what it meant. Joseph did it. Daniel did it. We see these powerful things. And in every situation where we see these dream interpreters, when when we see these things happening in the name of Christ, in the name of the Lord, they give the glory to the Lord, not to themselves. Paul is in the same situation. His testimony is proven by God's power. And the reality of Christ in his life is demonstrated because he's doing the things that Christ does. Not simply for us, Okay, we're not trying to say, oh man, nobody's going to believe me if I can't miraculously heal people. Nobody's going to believe my testimony if I can't speak in tongues or, or whatever else. But when we reflect the reality of Christ through our relationships, what does that mean? When I act like the perfect example of love acted on earth. When Jesus, who is the fullness of grace and truth, demonstrated the love of God by laying His life down for others, that selflessness, Philippians 2, Paul gives us when I have the same mindset as Christ, then I do the things empowered by the Holy Spirit that look like Jesus. You want people to believe your testimony about Christ? Get rid of the hypocrisy in your life. Stop making Christ second to all of your earthly things and then talk about how important He is. Why don't more people take Christ seriously? Because far too many of us who claim to know Him don't take Him seriously enough. I get more caught up in the things of this world, the pleasures and the pain of this moment, than I do in the reality that Jesus is right now alive. And if I have received Him by faith, in other words, if I put all my hope in Him as my only parachute, that He has made me alive in Him. That's the power that proves our words. Third, we see the persistence. Paul is persistent in God's purpose. He's persistent in God's purpose. Alright, so what does it mean to be persistent in God's purpose? It means that the reality of Christ in my life makes every moment a meaningful mission. The reality of Christ in my life makes every moment a meaningful mission. So Paul, throughout the entire ministry that he has from chapter 9 until now, is actively looking to carry out the assignment that he knows he has been given. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I won't have you turn there for the sake of time because I'm already over, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we see how Paul's mentality has changed. And he says, we we no longer think of anybody in in merely human terms the way we used to. We used to look at Christ through merely human terms. But now, having been saved, having been changed, we have discovered the glory of God's mercy toward us, of God's grace. 
We've grasped the gravity of His grace, and it's bigger than anything else. Therefore, we plead with others to be reconciled to God. He says, it's as if God is making His appeal through us. We are His ambassadors. An ambassador always represents the kingdom to which they belong. There is no off time. You might, you, know, you might be off the clock officially, but you are never off the clock because you represent. Paul, in everything that he does, he's on his way to Rome. He goes to Rome when he doesn't have to. He could get out of this. He could, have, he could have been out of this already, but instead he recognizes that there is a purpose. God is moving him to these opportunities. So you know what happens now? He gets to Rome, and he's got two years on house arrest of unhindered preaching of the gospel. This is the power. His persistence in God's purpose makes every moment a meaningful mission. What does he preach? Salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Why does he preach it? Why is this a, such a passion for him? Because he has experienced the reality and gravity of this good news. I need you to understand, Paul was really religious before he knew Christ. And he was dead in his sins by his own words. He was the most religious guy you've ever known or imagined. He did everything right, humanly speaking. When he came to Christ, he died to the idol of his religion. And he had an encounter with the real, living Christ. And the zeal that he had before, the passion that he had before, was amplified times infinity because now he knew the reality it wasn't an aspiration he had actually experienced the gravity of this good news so everything else seems small and pale to him who does he preach to everybody from the from the governor to the prisoner and eventually to caesar himself that's that's what he's wanting to do everyone when and where does he preach it? Everywhere he can, in every chance he can, in every way, at every opportunity, whether it's convenient or inconvenient. Seeing life through the lens of mission. Because the reality of this is so big that there's no other reasonable way for him to respond. Paul gets it in a way that most of us don't. Now we do in moments and, and and very often we do when we come to christ and then we get comfortable in our churchiness and we sit in shelters like this in comfortable seats and people think we're good we're respectable paul's like man i'm the chief of sinners i, I was dead and every one of you dead in sin separated from god for eternity and you did nothing to earn God's favor. And you can't. The worst thing that happens to you in this life is still better than you deserve because you violated the very reason for your existence. Our crimes are against God. Paul got that. And it struck him, oh my gosh, I, I, even now I'm still doing the wrong thing and I, I, I want to be better and I'm not praise God. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wretched man that I am who will rescue me from this body of death. God in Christ. Hallelujah. Therefore, he says in Romans 12 verses 1 and 2, in light of God's mercy, offer your bodies, offer yourselves, every part of yourself as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual, reasonable, logical act of worship. And as you do that, stop letting yourself be pressed into this world's mold. This is all passing. Instead, fill your mind with God's Word, and as you renew your mind, let the Spirit transform you from within so it won't be a matter of trying to behave right so you look the part. It'll be a transformation from the inside out. 
for all he's done for you, how can you not live for him? That's Paul's mentality. That should be our mentality. He speaks the truth and he lives it out as a reflection of the reality of Christ. All right, let me wrap this up. We see this story. And all of these things that are true of Paul, and you might be thinking to yourself, I ain't Paul. I can't do that stuff. You're right, we're not Paul. But what is true of Paul is true of each one of us. If we are in Christ, the reality of Christ changes everything. And when I grasp the gravity of God's grace, it eclipses every other thing in my life that seemed so important that all comes to an end. It's all passing. The greatest joy you've ever felt is passing. The greatest misery you've ever experienced, it's passing. None of these are even worth comparing to the glory that God has in store for us. We are all dead in sin. We are all separated from the source of life by our sin until we receive Christ by faith. Because Jesus died in my place and in your place, paying the price for our sin, paying the price for our crimes against our Creator, everyone who trusts in Him alone has eternal life, abundant, free, purposeful, and never-ending. When we get that, when we really grasp it, when the reality of Christ becomes our reality, everything else becomes smaller and yet somehow greater and more meaningful than it has ever been before. When we really get it, when we take Christ seriously, we can rest in God's providence and live powerfully and purposefully in this great adventure of life in Christ. In this chapter... The book of Acts abruptly ends with a huge cliffhanger. What happens next? Tune in to see. We're writing it today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, it is astonishing when we actually get it, when we actually recognize and realize all that you've done for us. Sometimes it's hard for us to just be still. To just soak it in. So much swirling around us. Storms and all of these storms of life threaten to shipwreck us. (laughs) Sea waves cold that threaten the soul with infinite loss. And yet, Father... Your grace is greater than all of our sin and it's able to pardon us and cleanse us within. It's greater than anything we experience now. It eclipses every other thing. So help us to ditch the foolishness of trying to do it on our own. To ditch the foolishness of a religious life trying to earn your favor. We can't do that. Remind us that it is your grace, your undeserved favor that saves us. And we take hold of that gift by faith, by trusting. Shoot, even that's your gift from you. There's no place for works, so there's no way for us to boast. And yet, Father, when we are reborn, it doesn't even make sense for us to go back to be or to act like who we were before. Father, help us to stand firm. Not to let anything in this temporal life move us, but to give ourselves fully to Your work, to letting everybody know about who you are and to give glory to you because the labor that we do for you, it's not wasted. It's not in vain. Help us to glorify you, not just with our mouths, but with our very lives. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.